Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, doing pretty well. How about yourself? I am in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> right now? Uh, well, I will be in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> so I, as I mentioned on last week's show, am at a conference in New Hampshire. And one of the ideas of this conference is to take all the people that work on rock deformation and isolate them. So there is no cell phone signal and sketchy internet. Uh, that's the best way to make people work, I've found. Dungeons. And, mm-hmm. you know, it is the ideal environment to record a podcast with someone across the country. Oh, obviously. <laughs> well, it's the first week of school for me, so I imagine that I've either exploded or left the country. <laughs> right. So we're going to do something that we only do probably about twice a year, right. by the time being mm-hmm. Christmas, which yep. is... We are going to replay one of our favorites from the archives. Oh, and I loved this interview more than anything. So we're going to talk again for those of you who maybe didn't catch it the first time or those of you who did and you should listen to it again is we're going to talk with Dr. Brad Joliff. And it's so much fun to hear about this extraterrestrial stuff. Yes, lunar meteorites and things about geochemistry that I never thought I would be interested in. Uh, uh, you'll hear we're just fascinated <laughs> with in this episode. Uh, yes, exactly. And he is a wonderful scientist, and it's certainly one of my favorite episodes to re-listen to. And I don't say that very much, but um, I love it. So hopefully you will, too, if you missed it the first time around, or if you just want to hear it again. Right. So without further ado, we will present... A lot of people would like to think they've got a lunar meteorite, episode 56. We hope you enjoy, and we'll see you next week. Ninety percent of all scientists that have ever been alive are alive today. That's a lot of information, but don't panic. It's not an exact science. Hey, Shannon, how are you? Uh, I'm not doing very well, John. Why not? Uh, I'm busy getting ready for the end of the world. I don't know if you've read this article, but we're having a really close asteroid flyby. Well, maybe. <laughs> Look, when I say maybe, I mean, you know, the small error of error bar. But this error bar on this asteroid flyby March 5th, it's huge and terrifying. Yeah, it could come pretty close right? if it's on the very outside realm of the model possibilities. Right, so one end is 9 million miles. Big deal. Don't care about that. The other end for how close this could get is 11,000 miles. Thousand. <laughs> yeah, is that miles or kilometers? It's miles. I know. Isn't it awful? I don't mean to say it, but it, oh, yeah, it's miles. Wow. Exactly. So I've driven 11,000 miles. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 11,000 miles is not all that far. In <laughs> fact, you know, that's between geosynchronous satellites orbit at 26,200 miles, plus or minus. Mm-hmm. So that's between us and our geosync satellites if it's on that end of the air bar. Not even that. It's halfway between us <laughs> and, the, yeah, that's, and geosynchronous satellites. <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, so you'll see why I'm, you know, prepping right now. <laughs> I mean, you know, he's tiny, I guess. He's only about uh, 100 feet in diameter, but that would make a significant dent in your day. <laughs> that that would make a pretty big hole when it comes in at, you know, an incredible speed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, that's, uh, that's what I'm obsessing about this week. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> Well, it's actually a a pretty nice way to lead on in to what we're going to talk about this week, because this week we are going to talk about outer space (laughs) and the moon. (laughs) I really felt like the pigs in space uh, background music needed to be on when you said that. (laughs) Yeah, we'll put it in post. Excellent. Um, (laughs) And I know we've talked about the, the moon before, and it's obviously the thing that we look at when we look up into the night sky. So I'm really excited to talk more about its origins because even though it's been there for a long time, that's still sort of under debate, especially aged age and development of rocks on the moon. So I'm really excited to talk about this today. Well, yeah, and this is something that I would say neither of us are vaguely qualified <laughs> to talk about. 
So unlike in the past shows where we will research it and then try to become a little bit knowledgeable about it, uh, thanks to listener Martin, we're very happy to have guest Brad Jolliffe join us. How are you doing today, Brad? Oh, I'm doing fine. It's a great day, a little bit of snow outside in St. Louis, but uh, otherwise it's great. <laughs> it's five degrees here. So. Ah, you've got us beat. Uh, well, I'll rub it in that it was, you know, 62 yesterday here in Oklahoma. So. Uh, your time will come. <laughs> never, never. Um, well, uh, Brad, we'd like to say first that we are far from igneous petrologists. So um, <laughs> if you could t- keep the poikilitic talk to a minimum. <laughs> uh, okay, okay, we'll do that. We'll, no poikiloblasts and so forth. Yeah, yes, okay. yes, exactly. Um <laughs> I'm a PMAG person, and John's a geophysicist, so you know he knows nothing about the rocks. So we'll, oh, very uh, <laughs> good, very good. So this is this is um, how you know Martin. Yes, and, exactly. I, I know Martin uh, through doing earthquake seismology, and he tells me that you're going to tell us that the uh, the moon is not all westerly granite, which is what all seismologists think the entire Earth is. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, there are those who would say the interior of the moon is olivine and the uh, crust is is plagioclase, but it's not that simple. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. um, well, before we go there, um, could you tell us just a little bit about your background? So, I mean, our listeners know all about what we do, but they may not be, you know, igneous petrologists either. So, <laughs> Okay, well, sure. I, I actually started, I was an undergraduate at Furman University in South Carolina, and that's where I got interested in geology. Uh, first geology course I took, I knew that was the way to go, and so I got my degree in geology. From there, though, I went into the Army. I spent six years in the Corps of Engineers actually doing um, combat engineering as opposed to geological engineering, but I still had my this interest. And so when I finished my time um, on active duty, I went back to graduate school and I went to the South Dakota School of Mines and Technology in in Rapid City, South Dakota. The idea was to become a petroleum geologist, believe (laughs) it or not, but uh, that was in 1982. And in that year, the uh, petroleum industry had some hard times and so I ended up going for a PhD and, and studying igneous petrology. In fact, studying granites of the, uh, the Harney Peak granite in the Black Hills, which hosts Mount Rushmore. Oh, wow. I think it's impossible to go to South Dakota and not, you know, start <laughs> to look at these igneous rocks. Uh, I camped out there for a couple of weeks a year or so ago. And yeah, I, despite my better interest, I did a lot of, you know, looking for... Um, awesome oh what are those things called um <laughs> well no well, it's gone what Never you mind. what gone. you were probably looking for uh, the black hills also hosts a world-class uh, set of pegmatites that's what i was looking for <laughs> and pegmatites are interesting and they're relevant to my story because they're the extreme fractionates of the igneous world in other words you fractionate something and, and keep fractionating it and you concentrate rare elements and it's a very interesting thing. And that's what I actually did my PhD on. Oh, okay. But instead of going following that line of work, I had, um, I had become a student of uh, Jim Papike, who was one of the scientists who worked with Apollo samples in the early days. And he maintained that work and, in fact, taught some courses on, uh, uh, on the moon and on uh, igneous petrology and, and mineralogy of the moon. So I got very interested in that and, in fact, got a postdoc at Washington University, where I am now, working with Larry Haskin, who was also one of the early scientists, geochemist, um, working on lunar samples. So I came here and actually got started working on Apollo samples. And the interesting tie to pegmatites is that I immediately got interested in the Apollo 14 and Apollo 12 samples that represent the most extreme fractionates of the moon. And most people don't really know about this. It's a very interesting that the moon had some late-stage volcanism that produced some very interesting little sort of in a, in a microcosm things that are analogous to pegmatites. So I got interested in that, but interested sort of in the whole moon. Worked on Apollo samples um, for uh, at least a decade before I got into remote sensing. Then I started doing some uh, lunar remote sensing about the time the Clementine mission in 1994 and the Lunar Prospector mission in 1998 um, got going. And that was interesting because we could extend what we were learning about the moon from the samples 
to the whole globe because those two missions were the first orbital missions that really returned information um, for for the whole moon, including the polar regions. You know, the Apollo samples, uh, uh, the Apollo missions uh, uh, actually did some very good remote sensing, but they were on sort of equatorial swaths of data. So we got a view of the whole moon, and, and that's that became my, my passion. Now, the next thing that came along were lunar meteorites. These are rocks from the moon, blasted off the moon, that are now found on Earth in Antarctica and in the dry, hot desert regions of the Earth. So we study those here. I work with my uh, colleague, Randy Korotev, and, and we study lunar meteorites. We take them apart. We look at the geochemistry, the mineralogy. How do they compare to the Apollo samples? What can we tell about the moon that we didn't already know from the Apollo samples? Where do they fit in this whole global scheme of things that we get from remote sensing? So that's what I do now, and, um, and, and that's just been a lot of fun. So I've been studying Apollo samples for 30 years and uh, doing the remote sensing um, studies for about the last um, 15 years. And, and very interestingly, I now work with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter um, for sort of the global view of the moon. Wow, so that's, that's quite the span. And I'm actually curious, you said that a lot of the Apollo uh, data was around the equator, and that was mostly just because we landed on the equator for simplicity's sake, doing the moon missions, right? Right. Well, that's the way the uh, orbits were. So the orbiters were sort of sub-equatorial, and then they would release the landing modules. The landing modules um, actually strayed a little bit to the north uh, in the case of Apollo 15. But yes, they were sort of in that equatorial swath. So it really took until the mid-90s until we got these two orbital missions to really get good data for the whole moon. Of course, now we've had a whole um, suite of missions in the past decade or so, international missions, uh, including the one currently operating, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, that is um, really mapping the moon in great detail, much more so than we've had in the past. Uh, so we know, we've talked about this on the show before, uh, we get pummeled with, you know, tons, literally, of dust all the time here on Earth, right? And so you're looking at these lunar meteorites. Could you just explain really quickly maybe how you can tell they're lunar meteorites versus Martian meteorites versus stuff from an asteroid? Oh, absolutely. It's a great question. It's one we get all the time because a lot of people would like to think they've got a lunar meteorite. <laughs> yes. And a lot of people send their samples and collectors too who, who really know they've got a lunar piece. They'll send it here. Uh, my colleague Randy Kartev does a trace element analysis that really nails it down. But here's how we know. It's because we have Apollo samples. We know some of the key geochemical traits that distinguish the lunar samples from terrestrial, from Martian. Uh, there are certain things that distinguish um, all of the uh, different planets and, and meteorite parent bodies, if you will. Some of that is geochemistry. So even though the rocks may be similar to terrestrial rocks, there'll be something like the um, the lack of ferric iron, the lack of three plus iron on the moon is one of the things that's a signal. When we see a lunar sample, we look at the assemblage of minerals and we see very high calcium plagioclase. Um, and if we analyze the trace elements, it'll have a big positive europium anomaly. So there are some fingerprint kinds of things that really distinguish these. Uh, one of my favorites is a phosphate mineral called marilite, which it's calcium phosphate very similar to apatite. In fact, apatite also occurs on the moon. But the marilite that forms on the moon so far has a, a chemistry, a composition that we don't see in any other samples, not in Martians, not in meteorites, only in lunar samples. And even in the terrestrial samples, we don't see these same compositions. So we can you give us a thin section, give, a little, give us a little chunk of rock, we can tell you for sure if it's, if it's lunar. Um, wow, and can you narrow down lunar regions, say polar regions, uh, versus you know the, the mare, that kind of thing, from the, just the geochemistry or not? This is me not knowing anything about geochemistry. Oh, but that's a, that's a great question, and that's sort of something that we try very hard actually to do. Because we have global mapping now of several elements, in particular iron, and thorium, you might say thorium, how come thorium, isn't that a trace element? Well, <laughs> by uh, gamma ray spectroscopy, you can sense thorium from orbit, the thorium concentration. 
So we sort of know the, the distribution of iron and thorium on the moon, and we know the distribution of many of the other elements. You mentioned the Mari basalt region. So there are vast regions of basaltic volcanism on the moon, and those are very high in iron, relatively low in thorium. They really stand out uh, like a beacon, not only in images, but also in uh, their geochemistry. There are other regions of the moon that are very high in thorium content, and they sort of have specific locations. So if we get a sample, a lunar meteorite, that say is high in thorium and intermediate in iron content, we can, we can narrow down or constrain the parts of the moon where that must have come from. Seeing this ties back into you wanting to be a petroleum geologist because we look at thorium gamma ray <laughs> spectroscopy all the time. Ah, very good. That's right. It's wonderful because it's naturally radioactive. Otherwise, we're relying on cosmic rays to produce a little bit of uh, gamma ray uh, output at the surface of the moon everywhere. And so all the elements produce a little bit of, of this uh, signal, but thorium is producing it all the time on its own. I remember in um, my igneous petrology lab, which I won't say how long ago that was, um, <laughs> we got a suite of moon rocks, you know, in thin section, you know, we had to order them. They came in these cases that look like you, you should have them handcuffed to you, you know, um, and it was really cool. You were talking about these very specific minerals. And the one I remember the most is Armalkalite. Oh, yes. Armstrong, so, Aldrin, yeah. and Collins. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that stuck with me forever. And it was really beautiful and orange and nothing like we looked at before. Um, I thought that was really cool because yeah, you can actually get your hands on these, you know. As yeah, a that's, a, that's a great um, example. Our malcolite is one of the minerals that was um, noted first in lunar samples and later found uh, on Earth. And right. so that's another one. If you if you look at a thin section and you see minerals like our malcolite and tranquilityite, another one that was named for the Apollo 11 landing site, um, then uh, you really know you've got a lunar sample. And and those are very those are interesting and fun minerals to find too. I know our students love it when they're working at the microprobe and they find one of these exotic rare minerals. It's uh, wow, you know this is this is neat. So the. You said when they're working at the microprobe, and that's probably the main way that you interrogate these samples. But could you explain a little bit about how that works? Because I know there's going to be a lot of people listening that aren't familiar with how microprobing works. Sure. So uh, a micro microprobe is my shorthand way of saying electron microprobe because there are different kinds of microprobes. There are ion microprobes. There are laser Raman microprobes. But the electron microprobe uses a focused beam of electrons to strike the target of a sample. And usually we look at a thin section, so a polished sample of a rock material. Uh, really any solid material that has a polished surface, we can look at it. You hit it with a, with a focus beam of electrons. The electrons produce uh, x-rays in the materials that you're looking at. And it's very fine. This beam may be only a micron or two in diameter. And so you're looking at individual mineral grains and looking at the x-ray spectrum that is produced by the, the, the striking of the surface with these electrons. The X-ray spectrum then has information about the different elements that are present. And so if they're present at major to minor element levels down to the maybe 10 to 100 parts per million level, we can see that with the electron microprobe. So not only can we get spot analyses of the major and minor element chemistry of minerals, but we can also do imaging with that. So we can do x-ray imaging and backscattered electron imaging and really see the textures of these materials at a fine scale. This is one of the uh, key techniques that's used in laboratories for, this, for the study of, of rocks and minerals uh, in ge geology departments really around the world. Um, every, every good geology department's got to have an electron microprobe. It really complements what you can do with um, optical mic microscopes and other kinds of analyses. We just got a new electron microprobe to replace our old one. And I remember, you know, polishing my sample for hours to get it down to, <laughs> to oh, stick yeah. it in there. <laughs> yeah, well, and it's and it's wonderful, though. Once you do that, it's you're you're highly rewarded. Exactly. Oh, exactly. <laughs> um, we also just got a new scanning electron microscope. So like coupling those two together, this isn't just for, you know, lunar stuff like you're looking at, but anything that we look at too. you know, those microscopic sort of examinations of 
of both the chemistry and the structure tell you so much about how rocks are formed and what's happened to them after formation. Yeah, it's especially important for us, though, because we've got very tiny samples in many cases. And so, you know, the the Apollo samples are precious. And if you request them um, from the the archive at Johnson Space Center, uh, you'll get samples, but usually they're very small. and, And also, many of them are breaches. And so the information you're looking for is locked up in a tiny clast of a rock that's in an impact melt breccia or some other (laughs) thing that when you first look at it, you say, oh, my gosh, how am I going to get any information out of this rock? But then you interrogate these little clasts of igneous and sometimes slightly metamorphosed rocks, uh, and you can can get that information. But it needs microbeam techniques. And so the ion microprobe is another technique that's become very, very useful and, and big in extraterrestrial material analysis. So you say that there's limited quantities of sample, and I know we had several sample returns from Apollo, but roughly how much lunar material do we have on Earth now to look at? Okay, so Apollo samples, about 382 kilograms, and and I'm sorry, I think in kilograms. That's that's something like 800 pounds, or a little over 800 pounds, so you can think about it that way. Those were the Apollo samples. The Luna samples, which a lot of people forget about this, the Soviet Union had three missions in the 1970s that actually returned, robotically returned sample material from three different locations. Those were much smaller, however. That's only 320 grams. Grams. Okay, so we, so we have 380 kilograms of Apollo samples, 320 grams of Luna samples, and then in comes the lunar meteorites. The lunar meteorites, which continue to be found at a, at a pretty good pace, are now um, well over 100 kilograms. So not the size of the Apollo uh, sample set yet, but, but growing and getting pretty big. Wow, that's that's actually a lot more than I expected. That's a lot of rock. It's a uh, yeah, it's a lot of material, and and I tell you, a lot of it, a lot of the mass is still curated at Johnson Space Center, which is a good thing because we keep coming up with new techniques to analyze these materials. Yeah, I mean, I imagine it's a pretty competitive process just to get some of the sample to work on uh, because it's such a precious thing. It, it is. It's, I wouldn't say it's competitive, uh, but I would say you have to have good science. You have to actually have proposed to do something that's pretty, pretty um, uh, useful with the samples. There's a committee that actually looks at the request for samples and decides, okay, that's a good use. Uh, okay, that's not a good use. You know, if you want to get, if you want to get uh, 10 kilograms to grind up to make some kind of a powder that you can then do some experiments in, you aren't going to get it. <laughs> so, you know, it's that, it, that sort of thing. So are there any prospects for getting more? Oh, well, there, there certainly there are prospects. Um, there are two, two things come to mind there. One is um, back in the mid-2000s, actually, the, the country and NASA was sort of on a... Um, on a trajectory to get back to the moon, and, and in fact, we now have some new rockets that NASA has developed that can allow us to do this, to get back to the moon with humans and potentially do some uh, science there and return samples in the same way that the Apollo samples, uh, the Apollo missions did. So, in fact, studies have even been done to determine what would be the optimal mass. Okay, if you're going to do a number of different kinds of experiments, Let's also do some field geology, do some sample collection, and and see what we can do there. Well, right now that that program is a little bit on hold while NASA sort of sorts out what's going to be the next thing, big thing to do with humans. Do you go straight to Mars? Do you go to to, to Mars by way of the moon? Um, Do you actually try and do some on-surface science? So we're still, still working that out. There are also possibilities to get samples back robotically just the way the the Soviets did in the 70s. So there are a number of concepts that are uh, on the books that are at least um, in concept form of great interest to us that we would like to do with just a robotic sample return. Land somewhere on the moon, collect some sample, maybe you use a scoop, maybe you use a little rover to fetch some materials, return it, 
get it on the spacecraft, launch it back to Earth, and then uh, look at those samples. Now you might say, why do that when we have the Apollo samples and the lunar meteorites? Well, the Moon's a complex place, geologically, and we've really only investigated a small area of it. If you, if you plot all the Apollo landing sites on a globe of the Moon and then put a circle around them, you see it's really a very small area. We haven't been to the poles. We haven't been to the far side. There are so many interesting geologic phenomena and features on the Moon that we would like to investigate uh, that some of those are actually important enough, have enough science priority that we could propose and possibly get a mission to do a sample return. Wow, I mean, we haven't had anything on the moon. There's been orbiting observatories like LRO for a while, but the, the Chinese rover recently just returned the first pictures from the surface in something like 35 years, wasn't it? Right. So the Chang'e 3 mission um, actually did a successful landing, as you indicated, in the northern part of the Imbrium Basin on the near side of the moon um, and, and deployed uh, the little rover U-2, and U-2, I think, traversed um, a little over 100 meters or so and, and actually did a very nice um, set of analyses and returned that information to Earth. And, and it turns out this is a really good example of going back to the moon to a place that we could learn from remote sensing was different from Apollo and get some new information. So the basaltic area where Shanga 3 landed actually is one of these um, intermediate titanium basalts that we could see from orbit, but we knew we hadn't really collected in the Apollo collections. They're also a little bit younger than the basalts that were collected in the Apollo collections. So they teach us not only about the extent of volcanism in composition, but the extent of volcanism in time on the moon. So a very nice mission, actually. Hmm. And uh, you know, I look forward to the continued, continued work by the Chinese. It's so that's really cool. I've also been following that, obviously. And so you're talking about, you know, robotic boots on the ground. But you also mentioned field geology, and so that's near and dear to my heart. Um, so I was going to ask you, you know, you play a lot on Google Earth, and you show students um, air photos and how you can map from air photos. But there's also Google Moon. Have you done anything with that? And <laughs> I actually don't use Google Moon because I have other uh, tools that I <laughs> other tools ones. that I use. Well, um, <laughs> we use um, several sort of GIS programs. One, of course, that you're familiar familiar with is ArcGIS. So uh, a lot of the image and mapping information that we collect now, we we use through ArcGIS. We also have um, some some software that we use associated with Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. Uh, one is called React, and React is a wonderful, it's um, produced by ACT, and it's a wonderful uh, set of software programs that allow you to kind of zoom in to different areas of the moon that you've got information to overlay all kinds of different information, uh, and then to interrogate it. Um, where have we targeted? Where have we not imaged yet? What new kinds of imaging do we need to do? And, uh, and, and it's really quite useful. And the students, I think, really love working with this too. We have such high resolution now that you can start, as you indicated, Google Moon is a good way to do this. Start with the whole picture of the moon and just keep zooming in, zooming in, zooming in until you're looking at a boulder that's about a meter and a half across. And it's just amazing. You can see the spacecraft, all of the spacecraft that have landed on the moon. We can see them in these images. So for any doubters out there, did we really go to the moon? We've got the hardware. So uh, yes, we did. Wow, and so you've been involved recently in proposing one of these new sample return missions, right? Right, so um, there's, the, and the, the mission that I have been working with is called Moonrise. It's a mission that would go to the moon, to the far side of the moon, actually something that we haven't done yet with a lander land on the far side in a giant impact basin called the South Pole-Aitken Basin. I'll just call it SPA from here on, South Pole-Aitken. It's not at the South Pole, but it's named that because it actually extends, it has a rim that's at the South Pole and another rim that is almost at about 15 uh, degrees south latitude. So it's huge, 2,200 to 2,500 kilometers in diameter. Uh, one of the biggest impact structures in the solar system. 
We'd like to go there, collect some sample material, return it to Earth, mainly so we can determine the age of that basin. And you might say, why is this so important? What do you want to know that for? Well, on the moon, we know from the Apollo samples that a lot of the very large impacts that occurred, and these are the big impact basins that you can see on the near side when you look at the moon, the Imbrium Basin, the Serenitatis Basin, Tranquilitatis, all these big impact structures uh, occurred around four billion years ago. We know this because we've actually been able to determine the ages of the impact melt rocks produced by those events. And when, when, you, when you analyze a bunch of samples and you see this very, uh, if you look at it, think of it like a histogram, you see a spike of ages at four billion years, you say, what's going on with that? Why is that? Was this just the, the end ending of accretion? Or was there some other big event that occurred in the solar system at around four billion years to produce this big bombardment? Well, guess what? If this happened on the moon, it also happened on Earth. And all indications are that we see evidence of this even in the asteroid belt on Mars um, and on Mercury as well, where we can see the impacts. You don't see it on Venus because Venus has got a lot of volcanism and it covered over all those old ancient impacts just like has happened on Earth. On Earth, we have very little indication of these big uh, impactors. Well, anyway, this is an important thing to determine. What we'd like to know is how many of the big basins on the moon really did occur in this narrow interval of time, maybe 4.2 to 4.0 billion years or, or 3.9. Um, and and the, the only way we can do that is to get away from the big near side impact basins that we sampled with Apollo, get far away from those, and look at the oldest big basin on the moon, SPA, and the basins that formed even within it, and, and what I would say is we want to understand the chronology of that basin, we can then really nail down what was this, what was the timing of this big event that caused the moon and the earth and the inner solar system to get pummeled with asteroids. Now, you, you might say, okay, that's, that's interesting. Um, what, you know, what's going on in the inner solar system? This has big implications for like things like the origin of life and habitable environments on Earth and early Mars. But it goes beyond that because you have to ask the question, if this happened, what caused it? And there are some really interesting new theories about what may have caused a big impact bombardment around four billion years. And one idea is that it's actually our solar system evolving with giant planets actually moving and changing their orbits early in solar system history in such a way that they destabilized early big asteroid belts and caused this kind of raining down of impactors. So we'd really like to understand this. It's a mission that instead of, say, getting new images of a planetary surface, because we already have the moon, it's looking into deep time instead of at high resolution on the surface. We're looking at high resolution back in time to try to understand the early history of the solar system. So that's, those are the samples I'd really love to get and there's actually, there's more, there's lots to learn about the moon from these samples. Um, there are other possible uh, sample return missions, but that's the one that I've proposed. So I imagine that's logistically very challenging to do any work on the dark side, uh, on the far side, because you've got all kinds of communication problems. I'm assuming you have some kind of an orbiter that's doing your relays or... Right. Uh, Logistically, right. how's that going to work? So it is it is uh, more complicated in the exactly the way you say. Uh, we would use a, a relay satellite, a comsat, if you will, to uh, to first communicate with the surface because we want to be in communication while we're doing operations, um, and 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 perhaps to to help us fix any problems that we encounter. Uh, so we want to have that that relay satellite there. Um, one could do this entirely autonomously, but uh, that wouldn't be nearly as much fun and interesting to the public. You know, we want to be able to say, right. how are things going? Um, you mentioned I wanted to um, say it's it's the far side and we would land during the day on the far side. So we would be operating only during the day. And that puts a constraint on us. But fortunately, the moon's day is in about a half a month on Earth. So we would actually have, you know, maybe eight to ten days to do our, our work and, and then blast off and get back to Earth. 
The reason for doing that is we want to use solar power for everything. At nighttime right. on the moon, the problem is you don't have the solar power and things get really, really cold. So uh, electronics may not survive. It makes it more difficult. You might say, well, you know, why don't you just take a little bit of plutonium with you? Uh, that's, ex that's expensive. And the plutonium, pretty much we reserve that for outer planets types of missions where you really need that power. Right. So with all of this going on, and we didn't even have a chance to touch on the Mars work that you've done, which at some point maybe we can get you back on to talk about that. Uh, you've got a lot going on. And I was just curious, this is something that we've asked several of our guests, what, uh, what tools, and you discussed a few, you use to accomplish all of this work every day. So tools, programming languages, uh, how you get work done. Ah, okay, very good. One has to have lots of smart grad students working with them <laughs> and, and wonderful colleagues. I, you know, I said a minute ago, I, th I think I made the statement that I proposed this mission, Moonrise. That's actually not correct. There's a whole team. There's over 20 universities, or, or, I'm sorry, over 20 institutions, many of them other universities and scientists at those institutions um, who are involved in this proposal. Um, working with the Jet Propulsion Lab and with colleagues at Lockheed Martin. Uh, so it's a very big effort that one uh, has, has to do this. And, you know, without a great team, whether it's the Moonrise team or whether it's my team of grad students, I wouldn't get much done. So, uh, so that's the first thing I'd say. In terms of specific tools, um, we talked about some of the software tools for um, working with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter uh, data we use a couple of very specific kinds of things. One is uh, a, a set of programs called ISIS that the US Geological Survey and Flagstaff put together, imaging um, spectrometer, uh, imaging spectrometers um, uh, software is really, really key to handling these great big data sets. We have a single image, narrow angle camera image, maybe something like 256 megabits. These things are, are huge. And when you put a couple of them together, you've got a mosaic that we're now we're talking about gigabits and, or gigabytes even. So you might have an, a file that's 10 or 20 gigabytes in size. Most programs try loading that into Photoshop. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, we do, I, I do use Photoshop a lot. It's a wonderful program. But without ISIS, um, we would simply not be able to handle these kinds of images. Um, also, uh, things I mentioned, ArcGIS, um, React, uh, these are very important. Uh, in terms of my own personal um, programming experience, I'm, I'm pretty old. I, I don't want to give away too much here, but my programming <laughs> language is Fortran. And I still have a couple of programs that I work with um, in Fortran, and so I really enjoy doing that. Uh, it, it takes, you know, it takes a, a bit of time. You have to really, you know, set aside some quality time if you're going to do programming like that. But it's, but it's fun. I enjoy doing it. I think all of all students should really learn a programming language, and most of them do. And, and it's more modern than mine. I, I took Fortran '95, so I'm just going to throw that out there. Ah, <laughs> uh, very good. That's very good. You know, we still use Fortran a lot in geophysics because you can't beat it for speed on some of these really large computations that we do. And something like Python that is great for a lot of things in terms of solving large math problems is slow. Ah, uh, yeah, right, right. Yeah, it, it is fast, and it's, and it's, fun to, um, it, it's fun to work with it just to see how you can make things happen. So, you know, the, the exhilaration once you get a program uh, that, that you work through and it works the first time is always wonderful. <laughs> That's happened? <Yes. laughs> Man. <laughs> That's, uh, That's why I'm a field geologist. <laughs> so before we go on to uh, the last segment of the show, everybody's favorite segment, uh, I actually had a question for you about something that is completely... Uh, not completely, but mostly not scientific. And that's, have you read Seven Eves? No, I haven't oh. read Seven Eves, but, but I'm, gonna, I'm writing it down because the fact that you asked me that probably means that I should. <laughs> uh, we've both read it, and several folks that listen have read it and written in to say that they really enjoyed it. And any book that the first sentence starts with the breakup of the moon. 
Oh, uh, <laughs> you got me right there. Yep. <laughs> yeah. We're definitely going to wait for you to finish it, which will take probably a year or so because it's massive. But um, yeah, it's great. All about the moon right up your alley. Uh, yeah, you know, one thing I can say is that the moon's been hit with some pretty big hammers that haven't broken it up yet, so I think it's there to stay. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, uh, I guess we should go on to, like I said, everybody's favorite segment, which is Fun Paper Friday. Okay. And uh, <laughs> you suggested this paper for us that's a review of lunar chronology revealing a preponderance of 4.34 to 4.37 billion year ages. And this is Borg et al. And then you also linked in a nice summary for us uh, over on the Planetary Science Research Discoveries website. Right. So, uh, you know, let me just say uh, one brief thing about both of these articles. The, the Borg et al. article... Um, Lars Borg, Amy Gaffney, and Chip Shearer, uh, 2015, did a very nice review of sort of the early chronology of the moon that's based on, on geochronologic analyses of rocks and minerals. And it's important because early in the Apollo program, we got some ages on some samples, and you see ages like 4.5 billion years, 4.4 billion years, and you realize that the moon is indeed ancient, and we're seeing pieces of its ancient crust. But those age determinations, usually early on, had big uncertainties associated with them. Over the years, the techniques have gotten better and better and better, and now there are multiple chronometers that are used and uh, many different materials that have been analyzed. And so Lars is right in the middle of doing this work. Lars and Amy are both at Lawrence Livermore National Lab, where they've developed some great techniques and they do multiple chronometers there. And Lars has spent several decades really trying to understand the early uh, ages of igneous rocks on the moon. So this is a very interesting paper. The um, PSRD, as you mentioned, is a, a PSRD Discoveries, Planetary Science Research Discoveries, is hosted by the University of Hawaii and Jeff Taylor and Linda Martell out there who do such a good job with this. They'll take a an article that is really written for the science community and, and even at that difficult for many to understand and break it down into the essentials and say, hey, here's what's interesting about this and do it in a way that, you know, just anybody who's really interested can read a PSRD article and, and get it. And so that's a, so that's a great thing. And, and in fact, I've got that PSRD article open and I'm kind of poking through it and, and we can talk about some of the fun issues well definitely john and i had to rely on the psrd part um because yeah. <laughs> i will say i had ptsd when i started reading about all the <laughs> creep stuff <laughs> uh, right <laughs> so one thing that was in the article uh, that i thought was interesting is these five rules to try to get better constrained ages things using like using multiple clocks and making sure that these isochron plots have really well-defined uh, lines, and I think this was going back in data mining quite a bit, right? To try to find the best data out of everything collected. Yes, a absolutely. And and you might, you know, from from what I said about it earlier, you might think, oh, there are just tons and tons of data, but actually there are not. These are very very difficult analyses to do, um, and and one might spend several weeks um, working on a particular sample, rock sample, picking the different minerals, making mineral separates and the, do these very careful analyses and then get it a, a result that you don't understand and do the whole thing over again. And so yeah, they're, they're very high quality, very um, expensive, if you will, in terms of time, and you've got to have the very best mass spectrometers to do this work. So um, it, it really is interesting and good that uh, Lars said, okay, well, how can we really make sense of some of these um, early uh, age dates and use the whole suite of analyses that have been done over the years because we've been looking at these samples now for about 40 years. And I think that's a really cool point to think about how much sample that we have left from way back then because our chronology devices have gotten so much better over the years. So, you know, it's important that we didn't use it all up and now we can data mine and use new technologies to sort of refine this. Yes, the very careful chronology, and even some of the chronometers that we have now, we didn't have then. 
Um, and, in, and, and also, if you look at the paper, you realize that a lot of what's been done is done on whole rock samples or mineral separates, but we can also now do analyses with, with microbeam techniques like the ion microprobe. And so that's a, it's really key that we have done such a good job of curating the samples. And this really speaks to the insight that the uh, early scientists who set up the lab at Johnson Space Center and really got that curation facility going, uh, the insights that they had. And the, and the team that continues to do this work just does it fantastically. And I saw in the, the article as well that it said the analytic techniques now are so good that we're becoming limited by the rocks, things like these chronometers being reset and altered by impacts. Right. right. Well, just like on Earth, there are geologic processes that try to mess things up for us. And, mm. you know, anybody who does chemistry or geochemistry and then looks at real rock materials realizes that when you start metamorphosing things and when you start slamming them with impacts and partially melting them, you really can change things. And that's the way it is with the isotopes too. So that's one, one reason it's key to look at different um, iso isotope techniques, different chronometers, because they respond in different ways to these different processes, especially the process of shock and heating. We have the same problems in paleomagnetism for sure. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so this, uh, this study showed that there was an upper limit of like 4.34 to 4.37 million or billion years on this. And that had some implications for when this strong bombardment happened and kind of what we think about lunar differentiation, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, there's, you mentioned the, the time period 4.3 to 4.4 billion years ago. Um, okay, so let's put that in some context. We think the moon formed about 4.45 or so, close to 4.5 billion years ago. It's, a, you know, it's not as old as the Earth. We think that the moon was formed by a giant impact into Earth that put a bunch of debris into orbit around the Earth. Some of that debris, very hot, molten, coalesced, formed the moon. And so the early moon was a hot place. It had a magma ocean, just a, you know, the outer part of it, um, the, the mantle was, you know, for the most part, molten or partially molten. And from that crystallized the mantle and then the crust. And so dating these very old rocks gives us the age of the crust. And by shifting that age from, you know, we once thought that it was as old as 4.45 or so, billion years down to maybe 4.4 or even a little bit younger says, hey, if it was that magma ocean that was responsible for all this, then maybe it took a longer time to solidify than we thought. Maybe it stayed hot. Why did it stay hot? Maybe it's because the earth and moon were closer together at the time and tidal heating was a much bigger factor. And it kept the crust, the early crust, hot enough to keep these chronometers from settling in until maybe 100 or almost 200 million years after the moon first formed. So that's the important of these early ages. But then, as you, as you imply, there's some other possibilities that come up too. Maybe some of these ages were actually established by a big magmatic event that occurred at 4.3 something billion years. So if multiple chronometers are telling, telling us this, and we've got a lot of rocks of this age, what might have happened? Well, maybe it's actually related to one of these big impacts. Maybe there's a big impact like the SPA impact on the far side that actually caused a lot of mag melting and magmatism through shock uh, on the near side. And, and, and that gave rise to this very common age that we see. Well, we don't know, and this is why uh, there's really a lot of excitement about going back to the moon, getting more of these big impact ages so we can really work out the timing of events. If it turned out that South Balakan Basin had an age, it formed at about the same time as this spike in magmatic ages, then we'd have strong evidence for a, a, a causal um, relationship there. This even ties back into some of the Mars thing, which I know isn't in the purview of this paper, but you know, talking about um, the magmatic processes there and especially the impact. 
record there and these large scale impacts that we don't really have a handle on. Right. Of course, we have a much um, less of a record of the early years of Mars because most of the Martian meteorites that we're able to do age dating on are in fact much, much younger. You know, less than a billion, 1.3 billion down to several hundred million years old. We only have a few Mars meteorites that actually give us samples that record those ancient dates. So a lot of what we think about early Mars, we have to actually infer from what we know about the moon. Right. It just shows how it's all, you know, it's all tied together. So the yeah. seemingly unimportance of this in relation to Mars is actually, you know, not true. So. Right, right. Well, that's that's fantastic. I really have enjoyed uh, learning a lot about the moon and a lot about things that I knew absolutely nothing <laughs> about. Uh, we didn't even talk about creep. <laughs> well, you, you, you know, creep is pretty easy to understand because it's it's is material that's enriched in potassium, rare earth elements and phosphorus. But what the heck is ur creep? Well, ur creep just means it's the primordial, it's the original stuff. And, you know, it is it is kind of fun. It's something that we think about for the moon almost as, as unique on the moon. It's one of those unique trace element geochemical signatures that we keep seeing over and over again in the samples. That's that's the thing that stuck with me since igneous petrology so many years ago. Yes, right. <laughs> the magmatic dregs. Exactly. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to join us. This has been a lot of fun. Yes. Well, it's certainly my pleasure, and thanks a lot for having me on. Yeah, and thanks again to listener Martin for uh, getting us in touch with Brad so we could have this conversation. I will say that is one that I thoroughly enjoyed. Oh, yes. Uh, so much more to talk about the moon. I feel several shows that we're going to follow up on a lot of these um, ideas, and especially these new advances. I mean... Moon's been and we didn't even get to Mars. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I said Mars twice just to get it in there. <laughs> <laughs> but if you have anything that you would like to let us know about, uh, folks you think we should talk to, papers for Fun Paper Friday, anything like that, we love hearing from our listeners. You can always get a hold of us with audio comments or anything like that. We haven't had an audio comment in a while. So just a reminder, all you have to do is use the recording app on your phone. Uh, say what you'd like and email that to us. We're happy to put it on. So Shannon, how can they get a hold of us? Well, you can email us those audio comments, show at don'tpanicgeocast.com. As always, we're on Twitter at don'tpanicgeo. John is at geo underscore Lehman, and I am at Shannon Doolin. And until next week, remember, don't panic. It's not an exact science. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed are solely ours and do not necessarily reflect the views of our employers or funding agencies.